Hola. Hello. Bienvenidos a Enredo. A podcast about raising bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. I'm Monica. And I'm Paula. Welcome to Entre Dos. A podcast about raising bilingual children. Today we have a great show lined up for you. It's the first of a two-part interview with Arturo Hernandez, professor of psychology and director of the Laboratory for the Neural Basis of Bilingualism at the University of Houston and author of the book, The Bilingual Brain. Arturo is here to talk about the nature of language processing and elaborate on research that examines the factors that might help us understand how two or more languages are stored in one brain. Arturo is also multilingual and he has bilingual kids too, so you'll hear him talk about that experience as well. Before we go to the interview, we want to ask for a favor. This is where we usually try to get you to rate and subscribe to our show, but we wanted to do something different. A few days ago, we wrote a blog post about two organizations that are getting much-needed books and librarians to detained immigrant children across the nation. These children were separated from their families when they were crossing the border and now face an uphill battle to be reunited with their families. Reforma Children in Crisis and Kids in Need of Defense, or KIND, are delivering books to youths in detention centers right now and they are accepting donations. So if you want to help or donate a book, head over to entredospodcast.com for more information about how to donate. Arturo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here with you guys. Here at Entre Dos, we, we tackle everything in the bilingual universe, you know, from books to music to even the, the World Cup. But, but to every parent raising a bilingual child, questions about how the bilingual brain works, you know, they're crucial because we're trying to support our children's um, budding languages. Uh, and your research on the bilingual brain is expansive. And I think we could keep you here for hours, but we won't. Um, we know our, our audience has a lot of questions and, and possibly anxieties about their bilingual children. So we'll address some of them, some of those issues here. Um, but first, I have a question about your book. Um, you dedicate your book, The Bilingual Brain, to your mother and father, uh, your mother for teaching you two languages and your father for planting the seeds for two more. I think that's a quote. And and can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Um, that's yeah. That's true. Um, so so yeah. So my I mean, I guess you know my mom. You know, in the sense that when she's a native Spanish speaker, she came to the U.S. when she was nineteen, taught English as a foreign language for thirty years. So, you know, in a sense, I feel like my mom taught me English and Spanish very correctly. Um, and of course, it, you know, I, I have two, I guess you would say I have two native languages because I learned English from, you know, I have no memory of ever not speaking English or Spanish. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, in that sense, I have the feeling that my mom really taught me, although of course my dad also spoke to me as well, but there's this sort of maternal feeling of Spanish being the maternal, like my, you know, maternal language. And then, but her also knowing so much about English. And my dad was always very, um, 
he was very expansive in his thinking. He, you know, liked to think about what could be, what might be. And so when I was young, he bought me this record, um, which I do talk about in the book, um, from Roberto Carlos. Roberto Carlos was this Brazilian, is still, I think he's still alive, was very, very famous, you know, in Latin America and, and, and sing in Spanish and all that. And, and, and so my dad on a trip bought me the Portuguese version of that, uh, the same record that I was singing to in Spanish, and I started singing to it. And then many years later, I ended up um, learning Portuguese. Um, I think that singing those songs as a kid um, actually helped me later in some ways. And so I think that my dad sort of planted the seeds for more, although, I mean, we could, you know, that that's a really nice quote, but it's kind of hard to really split it up that evenly because it turns out my mom also stuck me with a Farsi-speaking babysitter for a year. My mom was studying French, and so she would speak in French out loud. So, I mean, I kind of divided it up that way in the sense of like mom being, you know, the home, the maternal languages, uh, the, and then my dad kind of being expansive, but really they both were. So, um that I, you know, I have to give credit to both of them for somehow giving me this really rich and linguistic environment. No, it sounds like you were surrounded by by language, by multi, sort of like a multilingual environment. Right. Exactly. I mean, um, and and not only that, um, there were there there. You know, I'm a scientist, and they're in the, the. You know, my dad was a professor of Spanish and Portuguese. My mom was in, you know, a master's in comparative literature. She's a writer. Um, so, I mean, their humanities, language, all of, I mean, they live, breathe, eat language. And I think I just had no choice, uh, despite me wanting to be a scientist. Um, I just had no choice. I could not ignore language. Has this continued on in your home? We, we really like to ask our guests how they tackle bilingualism in their own homes. And we read that you have three kids, I believe. So what approach did you apply with them? Were languages as present in your home? Yeah, so um, I so we do a basically a two parent two language. Although my wife is bilingual, she does speak Spanish and understands everything. And you know, she'll slip into Spanish every so often. She doesn't even catch herself doing it. You know, when it's just certain things, contextual things, cultural things, especially if she's you know not too happy with one of my kids, she'll slip into Spanish very quickly, um, which is kind of, kind of funny to, to think about. Um, uh, and, and, and I speak, so she speaks English to them, I speak Spanish, um, but they also have been exposed to German because of my work. We've traveled to Germany many times, actually a couple of times for a year, three summers. Um, and so they've had this really kind of, you know, trilingual experience um, at home, which is uh, really challenging. I can say that much. And, you know, since you've mentioned uh, kind of that one parent, one language approach, um, you know, I think parents adopt when they when they think of bilingualism, they try to adopt a specific strategy. And some people will choose that one parent, one language, some people, if they're both uh, speakers of the minority language, let's say Spanish, they'll speak only that language at home. In your experience or in your research, do you do you think there's one that's perhaps that works better than the other or that has a higher chance of success? Wow. Um, 
So, so I actually think the most challenging part, the home part is really important, but and and I can tell you from my own experience and also observing my kids, right? That the really, you know, ideally, and not everybody can do this, but ideally, if they can be immersed in that language, the chances are much higher uh, for the child um, because it's really hard. I mean, kids know, you know, I, they'll hear me. So, like right now, someone could come in and just speak in the door, and they'll hear me speaking English, or they'll hear me on the phone, or they'll hear me with a neighbor. So they know I speak English, right? I mean, and they'll and they'll speak to me in English, and I have to pretend that I don't understand what they're saying, but I understood perfectly what they said. <laughs> so, you know, kids are really smart, um, and and I don't really know that there is an ideal strategy uh, from the parents. I do know they need to get a certain amount of input, um, but I think, you know, really the tricky part is them sort of at some point realizing that they want to speak this language, which does not happen at 10 or at eight. <laughs> Usually sometime in teenage, I think kids turn around and they suddenly go, God, you know, I have this thing and my parents have been bugging me all these years to keep speaking this language that I may not use. But something will happen where suddenly they'll go, whoa, wow, I, I hadn't realized, you know, what a gift I had. And I think that's the hardest part is to realize and hope that at some point your children, right, when they grow up will say, you've given me a gift and I'm so glad you gave that to me. And uh, that, that's what I really hope that every child will achieve, right, within the household, that they'll take it upon themselves. And, and that's the biggest hope I could have, right? And it's really tricky to get there. So I know that, that's it, not a very satisfying answer, perhaps, but I think that's the best I can do. It, it is tricky. And, you know, that is a hope that, we all have really that at one point they will appreciate what we did for them. Right. <laughs> and, and I remember reading something you wrote where you say that a second language will often involve letting go of, of um, our identities in order to embrace something new. And a big part of what we want to do here is explore how the development of a cultural identity can support language learning. So, For us, we try to teach our kids about our home country, our customs, our culture. And is there any research that supports this? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's stretching out of what I study into what my experience is. But I do have this, I, I think everybody, you know, so, there's this, so there is this research on, you know, whether you think differently in each language, right? So, you know, do... People conceive colors differently if they speak Russian and they don't have as many, you know, they have more or fewer colors. So, sorry, not Russian, but languages that don't have as many labels for a color, right? So my, some languages have blue and green. Is there something that changes in their perception of that color to make it really right specific? So we're kind of thinking about that. Does your conception of color change because of your language having a label for it? blue and green just one label or blue green two labels and apparently there is some effect of memory right so there is some effect of 
how you remember that depending on what language you're using when you talk about uh, what color you saw. So I think if we want to kind of jump up and push that to something cultural, right, we could think of, you know, the world being somehow connected to, uh, you know, our, 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 ex our outside experience. And so in that sense, it's connected to everything and culture would be one of those things. Um, I, I, I think I used to underestimate the value of culture because it's really hard to define what it is. Right. But I, but I think that it is really valuable in, in, in the sense of us thinking of a cultural identity, right? Right. And I think, I think it connects to, to what you were saying a little bit before, which is, you know, once they reach that sort of independence, you know, their teenage years, how they will see the language that, that, that you try to teach them, right? And if will, they will adopt it as their own. And maybe this helps, right? You know, instilling pride in, in their heritage will give them sort of a boost in, in trying, you know, to adopt that language. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that all of those things are are really important and valuable, and and I think at some point people somehow take you know stock of that and they realize, wow, this is this is really something that's that's part of me. But it's really difficult in the teenage years and even early adulthood to figure out what that is, right? Because they're all trying to figure out who they are, and this just adds another yeah. level of complexity to it. Arturo, we've in in a course we you have online that we what we listen to. Um, we heard you describe languages as different species living in the same eco ecosystem, sharing and competing for resources. And I think you use that a little bit as a metaphor for what happens in the brain when you know multiple languages. Can you expand on that a little bit, or just talk a little bit about what happens? in the brain or how the brain can process multiple languages. Yeah, wow. I mean, <laughs> so so I mean that's that's a really good question and you know every time I feel like I have a, a better answer for for that question, I have another question. So let me sort of <laughs> so let me so let me sort of tell you where where what what I think the the tricky part is, right? And and I think the tricky part is that that when we think about language, we think there are multiple things we could think about, right? So one thing might be like, what language do I speak to a relative that doesn't speak any, you know, so in my case, right, a relative who speaks no English, what language do I speak to them? And then what language do I speak to, um, you know, people that I know at work that don't speak the other language, right? So there's that aspect of having to figure out, you know, what, how, how are you going to communicate your thinking and put it into words, right, f depending on who you're talking to or in what context you're, you're talking, right? So the hardest thing to do is, for me, is to go give a talk about my work in Spanish. That's the hardest thing to do because, you know, I can have a conversation with people. I can kind of go back and forth and joke. I can talk about the World Cup. You guys are talking about the World Cup. We can talk about soccer and tennis and sports and all kinds of things. But when it comes to your work, it's so ingrained in specific words that you know and you've practiced it so much that trying to do it in a different language really becomes very difficult, right? So I think 
there's that side of language, right? Which is, you know, what are we, how, what's, what's our output going to be, right? And there may be people that code switch, right? So that they know that the other person's bilingual and they go back and forth and they code switch back and forth and the language becomes, uh, you know, this code switched um, version of, you know, people call it Spanglish if you want to use that. Um, you could be code switching between any two languages, right? Um, and that's another version of the output, right? So what am I speaking at any particular moment? So that's one version of it. And I think in that sense, you do have this feeling of like, I really have to sometimes just talk in one language and that can you can have that sense of the, co the competition part, right? Like sometimes that other language wants to kick in uh, and, and you can't say it because it's not the right situation. So there's that aspect of it, right? The real time production. And then there's a kind of a, a deeper layer, right? Which I, which then you could think of like sharing resources and that, which is, you know, if you have a word that, so especially with romance languages, so for example, romance languages, I mean, the hard part there is that sometimes the words are the same words, but they're slightly different, you know, but sometimes they're the exact same words, right? So if you want to say the word ambiguous in English, ambiguo in Spanish, you just drop the us and you change the sound a little bit and it's the same word. It may have a slightly different meaning, but you can get away with it, right? So there's that kind of shared aspect of the underlying ways in which languages can help each other. Now, of course, that's simple for, you know, romance languages, much harder for like Mandarin, Chinese, and English, where there are no words that are shared, right? So at the word level, I mean, maybe something like Coca-Cola or iPhone <laughs> would be a similar word. Brands. <laughs> right, exactly, but not anything like any nouns or verbs or anything. Um, but there, there are other levels that are shared. So for example, English doesn't have a lot of endings. So like there's plurals, but there are not a lot of verbs. So the verbs don't change a lot with person the way they do in, in uh, romance languages. And it turns out Chinese also tends to be, not have as many of those little endings, right? Um, so it's more like English in that way. Um, and in some ways, when you when people read Mandarin Chinese, there's a similarity to English in the fact that um, you know you have to kind of interpret what the symbols are and make this. And, and it's not always the case that the symbols correspond to specific sounds. And so in English, that happens too because you have a lot of words that don't sound the way they look. So if you think about it in a really kind of deep way, there are ways that languages can help each other, right? and also compete um, because they're different or they're similar. And then there's a sort of task of what do I have to do right now and what does it have to sound like so the other person doesn't look at me and not and they're not sure what I'm saying. So I don't know if I, I hopefully I, I, I explained that part of it. And the, and the brain part is that it has to handle all of this in real time, which in some right. ways you kind of wonder how the heck does it do that? <laughs> yes, and I'm guessing you are still asking those questions. We are. I mean, I think I think I think a lot of it is driven contextually. It's just kind of we're figuring out where you know, just as if you know, someone, you know, when when we speak to coworkers, right? We use certain type of language, even if we're just monolingual. We'll use certain types of words, you know, like acronyms. You know, people say, you know. 
uh, God, I'm trying to think. Somebody sent me like LOS. They said, don't forget to send the LOS. And I'm like, what? I know what LOL is, but I don't know what LOS is. <laughs> and, I don't know what LOS is. <laughs> letter of support. Oh. Uh, and, and, and so the person re- didn't realize that they were using an acronym they use maybe in their field, right? And I'm not in their field. And so I was lost, right? So there's a lot of that even in a single language. And I think a lot of it is driven by context, right? Driven by the, the emotions we're feeling, uh, who we're talking to, what situation we're in, geographically where we're located. I think we take all of that very quickly and that serves as a, as a way to get us into a certain language mode, if you will. And then the streams of the brain that handle that are the streams that handle, you know, um, basically how we interact with the world, how we, you know, what we pick up, what we, what we hear, what we say. Um, those are all brain systems that are sort of general purpose systems that over time we kind of refine into more specialized systems that that. Again, you know, they're kind of combining for each language in a unique way, um, but but they are these more general purpose systems that are kind of put together to handle each of our languages. And Arturo, one thing that you mentioned um, is something that that we talk about a lot uh, is code switching. Um, it, it's it's something that I don't know that people fully understand what it means. Um, and also, um, do bilinguals at every level of development do code switching? Um, it, it's kind of interesting because we, we could even think about, so even if, if somebody doesn't code switch, so let's do the extreme case, right, where there's no code switching. Um, so, so. Uh, I, I don't like code switching. I either speak one language with people or another one, although I sometimes will go back and forth. Um, but I really don't like doing that. And I think it's partly because when I went to Mexico with my mom's family, I could not use an English word because they wouldn't know what I meant. So, I mean, I had to find the Spanish word or figure out what it was or someone had to tell me. So I think that's partly my experience. But even when that's true, right, we always blend information, right? So... When I got back, I went, when I was 14, I was in Mexico for a year. I stayed with my aunt. I studied there. And when I got back, I remember I was talking to my dad and I said, you know, I'm very content. And my dad just kind of looked at me and said, that's not really what you mean, right? I'm not contento, right? Contento means happy. <laughs> content just kind of means like, uh, you're, you're fine. Satisfied. Right? Exactly. So he says, you don't really mean you're content. You mean you're happy, right? So, so you can see right there that I'm, I'm not code switching, right? And it's a correct word. It's just not quite the right nuanced usage of it, right? So I think that even if we push it down to, are we always blending our languages? Even if it's not a perceived code switch, and my answer would be yes. Because we're going to take, we're not going to try to keep, you know, we might have a slight, you know, I have a sort of general idea what content is and contento is, and it kind of, I just kind of tweak it a little bit, but I'm not going to create two different you know, like a, an English content idea and a Spanish contento. I'm going to have a content, you know, kind of middle thing that I just kind of take either make it a little bit stronger, a little bit weaker, right? So I'm going to always want to economize my my representations. Psychologists like to call things representations, right? What I have in my head, I'm going to economize. And so I think in code switching, what happens is you're economizing, right? If you're going to talk about... Um, 
you know, um, I remember I had a friend who was from Puerto Rican who would complain, you know, so she was from Puerto Rico and she'd complain about the New York Rican. Sorry, and I don't want to offend anybody because this is what she told me, right? So she was complaining. We do that all the time. Right. <laughs> Puerto Rican and we, we do that, yes. She said, you know, these guys, you know, they say la fornitura, right? Or el rufo, right? Um, and, and maybe I can take a plug here, right? So when I talk to the gardener, he's asked me if I, uh, if I want to trimiar, right? Yes. to trim, right? And I'm like, that one before. Rebajar, cortar, but trimiar doesn't exist, right? So, so I think that, you know, even if you don't code switch, you're always economizing. And I think that's what code switch is doing. Code switching is doing is it, it's economizing, right? It's taking a word that may, that I may know better in the other language that may not exist, right? So why do people say troca? Well, because there's no freaking word in Spanish for troca, right? It's camión. But camión could also, you know, camión doesn't quite work. It's not the same thing. Or pick-up, right? You know, there aren't mm-hmm. words for Spanish. So what do you do? You say troca because people know what that means. So, you know, it just, it, it, it's, it's natural for you to, to do that, to sort of, to blend. And I think code switching in a way is just an extension of blending. But now you've actually switched to the other language. I don't know if, I, and, if that's clear. It is. And, and, you know, one thing, you know, when we talk about code switching is about, you know, when, when our younger children uh, are start mixed languages, which happens, you know, we wonder how much of this should be allowed and how much of it should be adjusted, um, especially, you know, kids that are just learning language, you know, toddlers and, and, and maybe even four or five, six-year-olds. Um, is this something that should be adjusted? The code switching should it be corrected? I mean, so so my kids always did this, right? And I did this too. So when I was a little kid, one time I was out somewhere. I don't know. We were it's like really hot, which doesn't happen. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so it's not really very hot often. But when it's hot, you know, you feel it because it's not hot that often there. And one time we were in the middle of something and I just, yeah, I was like waiting in line and I was thirsty. And so I just yelled out, a water. I just went, a water, a water. My mom told me this story, a water, a water, right? So, um, and, and so agua, water, a water, right? It's like one word for me, right? I mean, it, it, it's naturally, it's exactly what I'm, but kind of what I was saying, right? You blend the concepts. You're going to naturally want to play with the language, right? That's what little infants do when they babble right it's nonsensical nobody says oh well this eight-month-old is speaking and they're not really saying words so let's try to make them say words they're babbling <laughs> right? right there's nothing wrong with that you, you know adult would say oh no no you've got to speak in words you can't babble so i think it's very similar i think um kids will naturally do that my daughter would say papi esto no tiene flavor that's that's a good one that's a good one (laughs) right and and sabor sounds like flavor it's flavor sound it's probably a french word and so she just you know made it into spanish but it doesn't you don't use it in in spanish so so i think it's very natural to play with language um kids do play a lot and they're trying to figure out how these languages are different or similar um I, I think it's it's normal to do that. At some point, they'll realize, okay, I can't mix because an adult told me that I can't or I'm writing now and I can't go back and forth. But it takes a little bit of time to do it. And I really wouldn't sweat it 
I think I think what I would do when what I always did and it seemed to work just fine and my parents did the same thing was you know you just you 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 can have a child code switching and if you don't code switch and you continue and you fill in the right word right so sometimes people will switch and then you you repeat what they say but you say it with the word that they didn't know then at some point they'll fill it it fill it in themselves right because maybe they didn't have that word available and so they had to switch they didn't know what the word was for sabor right for flavor and so they said flavor <laughs> So maybe maybe they don't know, and maybe you can fill it in for them and say, "Oh, no tiene sabor," right? So you switch and you give them the full term, but you don't tell them you're wrong. You just repeat, right? And then at some point they realize, "Oh, that's the same thing," and that's how you right. So you can kind of guide them, and I did a lot of that as a parent, a lot of repetition, a lot of saying it over again. It's kind of weird, like why would you do that? But it kind of guides them into like this is how you would say it if you didn't switch at all, or if you were really trying to say it. And you do that over time. Eventually, they realize, oh, I, you know, I can do that. We hope you found the first of this two-part interview helpful. Thank you so much to Arturo for walking us around the bilingual brain, and stay tuned for next week where we will discuss the elusive window of opportunity by literacy and the language continuum. Come join us at Entre Dos Community on Facebook to discuss this episode. We really want to hear from you. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Entre Dos Podcast. Also, we hope you'll subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us. You can also find us on our network at All Points West. Dot net. Until next week, nos vemos. Hasta la próxima. Points West.